Welcome to the You Love and You Learn podcast, the place to learn about all things love, relationships, relationship anxiety, and to deconstruct the one-size-fits-all narrative of what it means to be in a happy relationship. I'm your host, Sarah Yudkin, a relationship anxiety coach who's on a mission to discuss the nuances of love and relationships that I wish someone would have shared with me years ago. My goal with each episode is for you to leave with an expanded definition of love and relationships and with practices to carry with you in your life and relationships on a day-to-day basis. I'm so grateful to have you here. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of the podcast. So happy to be here with you each week. Today's episode, I had the pleasure of sitting down with Dr. Russell Kennedy, who specializes in helping people recover from anxiety disorders. He knows anxiety from the inside out due to developing his own anxiety disorder as a result of growing up with a dad with schizophrenia. Dr. Kennedy has degrees and advanced training in medicine, neuroscience, and developmental psychology, but in his world, it's not all science. He is also a certified yoga and meditation teacher and was a professional stand-up comedian for over a decade. His award-winning book, Anxiety Rx, shows a practical, actionable program for anxiety relief, and in today's conversation, we focus on the key concepts from the book Anxiety Rx, which I absolutely love. I can attest to how amazing the book is, and I really recommend it to anyone who's looking to better understand anxiety. It's really helped me understand my mind and body in a new way. I'm really excited for you to hear our conversation, so let's dive in. Russ, thank you so much for coming on the You Love and You Learn podcast. Oh, it's my pleasure, Sarah. It's nice to finally connect with you. We've been chatting for so long. Definitely. And I was prepping for this episode and I was like, how am I going (laughs) to limit all this down? Because I had pages and pages of notes from your amazing book, Anxiety Rx, which I highly recommend to people often. So I'm just very excited to unpack these concepts with you. Awesome. (laughs) I love it. Can you just kick us off by sharing a little bit more of why you're so passionate about spreading the message that you have spread in Anxiety Rx? Like what's the personal tie to all of this for you? Yeah, I think because I struggled with anxiety for like 30 plus years and I went to psychiatrists and psychologists and EMDR and HIJK, LMNLP, ACT, everything. <laughs> like I did everything and nothing really seemed to make, I mean, EMDR helped a little bit, um, but, and, and so did the, the cognitive therapy, but I think that we're so, we're so cognitive in, in our society that we think that the mind can heal the mind. And, you know, I think Einstein said the problem can't be solved at the same level it was created. So I don't think we're actually getting at the root cause of anxiety by trying to fix the mind. I think the root cause of anxiety is old, unresolved wounds, emotional wounds, typically from childhood that are still stuck in us. And it acts as a, as sort of a, a resonant, energetic, negative feedback loop inside of our minds and our bodies because with this old alarm that you know maybe came from being bullied when you were 13 or maybe your parents got divorced and they never really got along or whatever, that's still in you. And through this process that Stephen Porges talks about called interoception, where the mind is constantly reading the body, if the mind reads that alarm, it's going to make thoughts out of it that are completely consistent with the negative nature of the feeling. So you're going to start creating warnings, what ifs, worst case scenarios. And then that just activates the alarm in your body. So the alarm in the body activates the 
the a lot the wounded you know anxious thoughts of the mind which of course aggravates the alarm so we get into this thing called the alarm anxiety cycle alarm in the body anxiety in the mind and they they energize each other so if we don't see them as two separate entities and we try and attack anxiety just as this one big monster we never actually really get to the underlying cause so my premise is separate the alarm in the body which is your younger self and the anxiety of the mind and if you can split them apart because they energize each other when you break the cycle you can start healing from anxiety but if you don't know that you're trapped in this cycle you can't heal something that you can't recognize or you're not aware of yeah and when i first read your book I was just like, this makes so much sense. And it was one of the first times I really had come across that narrative that you can't just think your way out of something because I, like you said, we are in such a cognitive, like just, you know, get it done or like yeah. just grind through it culture that sometimes you feel like you're broken if you keep trying to give yourself positive affirmations to fix your anxiety and it's not working. And so I feel like this was a permission slip for me that like, okay, I get why some of these things that I was trying just kind of were falling on my own deaf ears, so to speak. Yeah. I mean, they work in the short term. That's the thing. I was talking to Cynthia, my wife the other day. So she's a somatic trauma therapist. She really goes into somatic experiencing. I kind of draw from uh, internal family systems, somatic experiencing, uh, my experience with psychedelics. So I, I kind of pull this mishmash together and that kind of thing. But it's really important to understand that cognitive therapies do help. They do work, but they tend to wear off over time mm -hmm. uh, and they work fairly quickly. Uh, now, the opposite of that is somatic therapy going into your body, really sitting with it, really being able to metabolize it. And as Bessel Lander Koch talks about in The Body Keeps the Score, we're not teaching people how to get rid of their anxiety. We're teaching you how to acclimatize to this sensation in your body so you don't have to compulsively go up into worry all the time, which basically just keeps you trapped in that cycle. So somatic therapy works very slowly, but it tends to stick. Mm -hmm. Whereas cognitive therapy works quite quickly, but it doesn't tend to last. So it's like, can you get a combination of those two things where we, because we are hugely cognitive creatures, for sure. We have these huge prefrontal cortices in our brains. Um, but that part of our brain isn't what heals us. What heals us is, is going down into the subcortical, like the parts of us, like the amygdala, the hippocampus, the brainstem that doesn't understand language. So talking to them in language, these structures, these unconscious structures doesn't really help us heal. It helps us understand, but to heal, we really need to go into the unconscious structures, which is basically going into the body. Yeah. And I definitely want to talk about some of that later in this episode. I'm sure. excited to dive into that. But kind of related to this, in the book, you talk about this error that people with anxiety make, which is basically associating the pain that's coming from the thoughts they're thinking, mm -hmm. and then the fight or flight response in the body that comes right after that. And they think, well, it must be that these thoughts or this right. experience directly in this moment is what is creating the pain. So can you talk about why this is an error? And is it not true then that we should believe every thought that pops up in the moment? Yeah. I, mean, I think what happens is that we're so we're such cognitive creatures from the time we're like two years old, we're trying to figure out the world. And then we get more verbal around seven or eight. And then we explain the world and it becomes such a, a framework that we don't actually see any other way out of it. 
And I think it's, it, that's a real big problem. I, I think we're not teaching our kids to stay in their bodies, to stay in that kind of like just felt sense of being content and being okay. So when we go into our, our mind to look for the, for the, for the solution and the solution isn't there, we just get frustrated because we get so used to thinking, we get so used to looking at the world in a cognitive and talk, we talk to ourselves in words. Like when we look at things, it's like, oh, that's a nice tree. You know, like we, mm -hmm. we talk to ourselves in words. We don't really think about talking to ourselves in feeling. So what we do is we get so acclimatized to explaining things that we assume the thought causes the feeling when what if it's the opposite? What if unconsciously, because we're not that versed in, in feeling, the feeling is there. And then the thought pops into our head and we assume that the thought was the originator, but actually it was the feeling in the body that's the originator. Mm -hmm. And if you notice, if your body feels good, I have this thing like, like it's it's almost like you get pointed in the, in the green direction. You know, if your body, your mind gets pointed in the green direction, which is like, hey, things are good. You know, my relationship's going well. Uh, you know, I'm not making as much money as I'd like, but I'm still good, right? Mm -hmm. But when your body is alarmed, it just unconsciously points you in like a needle, like on a gas gauge, it just points you to the empty. And mm -hmm. it's like, what, what do I feel empty about? Well, my relationship isn't going well. I don't know if this is going to last. I don't know if I'm in the right relationship. And 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 then because you made it up, you believe it through this your own internal confirmation bias. You make mm -hmm. up your own worst fears. And then because you made them up, you believe them, which of course creates more alarm in your body, which sets this whole thing, you know, in this completely self-perpetuating cycle. And on top of that, when we get into this survival body alarm state, we shut off our rational mind in favor of our emotional mind because 60,000 years ago, when we were being chased by a warring tribe or whatever, we didn't need our intellect at that point. We didn't need our emotion. So we're still, we have stone age brains in a digital world. So we're still trapped in that thing where we go into emotion. We go into emotion automatically and we don't, and we don't see that we've actually lost our rational mind. We still think what we can think and the thing about that is that it's the most damaging is that we create threat based on how our body feels. And then we shut off the part of our brain that would actually tell us that these threats are nothing to worry about. So we get double whammy, mm. we make more threat. And then we shut off the part of our brain that would actually soothe us. So of yeah. course, these threats are going to feel horrible. Mm. Yeah, I totally and then get that's why that's why just to tag on to that. That's why you think of something like, Yesterday, it's like, why did I get so upset about that? Like, that wasn't such a big deal. It's because at the time, your body was deep in alarm, cortisol, epinephrine, norepinephrine in your brain, and you didn't have the rational part of you that you have at this particular moment to say, you know what, I really overreacted there. Yeah, I was just going to say, I feel like I obviously know exactly what you mean. We've all had those experiences. And I think you gave an interesting example of that question of, well, okay, I'm in that red zone. Everything looks like danger. So now I'm questioning my relationship. Maybe it's my relationship. And then a common question that people come to me with is how do I know if this is my intuition or if it's really just fear? And I address this all the time. I mean, I have a whole webinar where I've talked about this and some of right. what your work has shared, has inspired that. But I think it's, it's really hard to parse out the two because maybe yeah. when you're in that green zone, your intuition, quote, quote, feels like it's guiding you forward towards something. But in that red zone full of alarm, when your body is in fight or flight, 
it can really feel in that moment, like your intuition is saying, run, run, danger. So how do you work with your clients or how do you share this information with people to parse that out? Yeah, I, I really go into the body. Like if you have this sense that, hey, I'm grounded, I'm feeling you know relaxed right now, I'm feeling content and I'm looking at my partner going, you know what? I don't think this is really working for me. Or, you know, you're in alarm, you're kind of freaked out about stuff, you know, you got a dentist appointment, you know, you've got a tax bill, whatever. And it's like, geez, I hate it when they do that. I hate it when they do that. Maybe this <laughs> is the... so it's like, really look into your body, because if your body's relaxed, and you're having these same thoughts, that's more likely into I mean, there's no hard, solid rule. But look yeah. into your body when you're having these thoughts, if your body's an alarm, and you're having this thought, it's much more likely that it's fear driven. Mm -hmm. But if your body's relaxed and you're just sort of sitting there going, you know, I don't know if this is really the, you know, and this goes for your job, this goes for, you know, your relationship, this goes for just about everything. If your body is feeling relaxed and you check with your breath, you know, where is your breath? If it's deep and slow and relaxed, chances are the stuff you're coming out with is intuition. If your body's in alarm, chances are the stuff you're coming out with is fear. Now there is overlap. Absolutely. But that's that's kind of a solid kind of thing that I tell people. And it seems to help people understand like, okay, if I'm still having this, you know, deep, deep relationship doubt when I'm when I'm feeling calm, there's probably more weight to that. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And I think something you also talk about in your book, which can be another nuance in this complex subject is like dissociation or feeling numb and not even mm -hmm. feel like you feel almost withdrawn completely but then maybe your brain is trying to tell you that's what's actually calm but really you're not feeling anything towards anyone in those moments and so I think that's where I've always found like I need to really check in with how I'm I'm feeling not just for a moment but for an extended period of time and connecting back to my values and having it be consistent because I think we can fluctuate from that disconnection as well yeah and, you know, was love safe when you were a child? For me, you know, my dad was bipolar and schizophrenic, which I've talked about at, at extensively. And he committed suicide when I was 26 and was very connected, very loving, very silly, very fun, very playful guy. But then when he would go depressed, I'd lose him. When he went manic, I would lose him. When he went psychotic, I would lose him. So the little unconscious message that that Rusty got, my younger version of me, was that love isn't safe because when you love this person and, and you see them suffer so much, it's easier in a way just to, to dissociate from them and go numb than it is to stay emotionally connected to them and feel the horrible pain that they're going through. So that becomes a pattern, you know, and we talked, you know, before we got on about being divorced a couple of times and stuff, because there was this sense that I couldn't trust love when I was younger. So that pervaded just about every relationship that I had. So it's really important to understand. It was really important for me to understand that that feeling within me of love not being safe really ran my whole life because I think when we grow up with attuned attached parents you know they don't have to be perfect but attuned and attached parents that that can sue this that we can talk to that we can work through things we learn that life is about connection and relationships but when we grow up with trauma you know and it doesn't have to be huge trauma you know this is the other thing people who are very very sensitive born very sensitive which most of us with anxiety are it doesn't take a lot of trauma you know it can be little t trauma to really you know make us not trust things 
So if my framework is that you can't trust love, it's going to be very difficult for me to actually enjoy a relationship because when it's going well, I'm always waiting for it to fail. And when it's not going well, it's like, see, see, you can't trust this. So yeah. that's where the confirmation bias comes in. Absolutely. Yeah. Thank you for bringing that up. Um, and I think that, you know, the quote that I asked you if you were comfortable with me reading from the book, which I thought was so powerful, was you said two divorces have taught me that you can't numb to one person without numbing to all people. And this caused your relationships to suffer. And I think a lot of people can relate to this unintentionally closing their hearts off. Maybe it's in the relationship they're in now or they've had past experiences of doing this. What advice do you give to someone in that position when they realize that they're numbing because love has felt dangerous to them in the past? Well, go at it slowly and, and develop the connection with yourself. Because really what happens is when there's trauma in our families when we're younger, um, it gets stuffed down into our unconscious because our conscious mind is children. We just can't handle it. And then from that, from the unconscious, and then it gets buried deeper in, and because the unconscious mind is represented by the body, this stuff gets stored in our body. So for me, I tell people like when you're really scared or you're really, you know, you're having a fight or an argument or whatever, it's like, where do you feel that in your body? You know, a lot of people, it's in their throat. A lot of like, I deal with a lot of women who had like narcissistic mothers or overly demanding mothers. And they have a tremendous amount of alarm in their throat, which is kind of like fifth chakra, which is like speaking, you know, and mm -hmm. sometimes as a medical doctor and a neuroscientist, when I talk about chakras, I want to have a seizure because it's so antithetical to how I was trained. But <laughs> it's just such a pattern that I've seen with with women specifically with their moms um, that they will hold this alarm in their throat because they always wanted to say something, but they never could or they never felt heard. So I said, you know, put your hand over that area, like find that area that lights up with you when your relationship is threatened or you feel fearful, like find it in your body. Some people it's in their solar plexus, like me. Some people it's around their heart. Some people it's in their throat. A lot of times it's in the midline of the body. You know, sometimes it's across the shoulders. But um, and that's the other thing is I, I see people who had a lot of uh, responsibility in their family at a very young age show up with alarm across their shoulder. So after you do this mm. hundreds of times, you see certain patterns that show up. But one of the, the common patterns I see with love and, and inability to trust love and that kind of thing is this daughter mother relationship wasn't very strong or was, you know, abusive or, or um, some way negative. And then that way, your ideal of love just gets changed. And because we have this compulsion to replicate what was familiar in our childhood, like Fred, Freud called it the, the repetition compulsion, we will often pick partners that are similar in the negative aspects of our parents. Mm -hmm. So if our parent, if, if you're a narcissistic or, or demanding mother, it's amazing how much we'll, we will gravitate towards partnerships that are narcissistic and demanding. You know, it was mm -hmm. what we were familiar with. You know, so it's just being aware of, and that's what I tell people, I said, what, you know, what did love look like in your family? And how are you replicating that same kind of pattern or paradigm in your adult life without even being aware of it? You know, I used to see a lot of my uh, patients who, because I was a family doctor, I would see a lot of patients who had alcoholic parents pick alcoholic partners. And mm -hmm. it's almost like, yeah, I mean, they, I was like, what are you doing? You mm -hmm. know, and it's like, I know, I know, <laughs> right? 
So it's kind of like, well, I didn't, I didn't know it at the time, but it's kind of like we, we replicate what was familiar to us in childhood, in our adulthood. And we do it so unconsciously, like we have so many blind spots, you know, we see people, you know, and I'm sure you have friends and I have friends that, you know, get into the same negative relationship. Person's got a different haircut, but it's basically the same relationship over and over and over again. And we can see it clearly, but they can't. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I totally get that. Yeah. I get what you mean about like the unconscious part, obviously, because none of this is intentional. Mm -hmm. And I think everyone, even your clients that were joking, like, I know, I know what's I know. going Doing on. It's again. like, you can yep. kind of eventually consciously become aware, but then the alarm or the the pattern is just so deeply within yeah. you that it's hard so to automatic. kind of move out. Absolutely. Yeah. I guess one question that is coming up in response to that is, you know, for your story, for example, you have a clear, you know, understanding of what was traumatizing in your yes. life. And yep. I don't think everybody has that, but I think because trauma or emotional wounding, whatever it is, is such a big buzz now on social yeah. media and such a big topic. I know that that can sometimes be hard for people who maybe don't know exactly why they feel this way. And then I think what I'm seeing is that people can almost like obsessively try to find what is this trauma? Like I need to know exactly what right. it is so I can fix it and unpack it. So can you speak to that? Like how do we help our alarm without becoming obsessed with being fixer uppers of like getting everything out of our body? Yeah, we don't have to know. Like people will come to me and they'll say, you know, I have this tremendous anxiety. I have a sense that when I was younger, you know, something happened to me, but I don't know. Like, do I have to know what happened? I said, no, what you need to know is you need to know how it feels in your body. Because a lot of times we will have trauma before the age of seven. And because we're not verbal, we don't have a story about it. And on top of that, you know, there's there's two main structures that that encode memories in our brain, the amygdala and the hippocampus. And the amygdala, as a general rule, you know, records emotional memories. And the hippocampus, as a general rule, kind of time date stamps those memories. So the hippocampus is, is less emotional than the amygdala. Now, what happens is that when we get stressed and create, you know, epinephrine and cortisol is we paralyze the hippocampus. So we don't time date stamp those memories, but we do emotionally stamp them. And because the amygdala has no sense of time, when we get reminded into our present day awareness of something that is similar to what hurt us in the past, we will regress back to that time. Mm -hmm. So, so if you got bit by a dog, when you're three or four years old, you're afraid of dogs, but you don't really know why, because you don't really remember the incident at all. Mm -hmm. That's the amygdala and the amygdala will take you back to being a three-year-old. When you see a dog coming down the street, it it'll, will fire up your body in that way. And then when you fire up your body in that way, again, we shut off our rational mind we get emotional and then we start looking for confirmation of what we're afraid of. So, and then we will find it. You'll always find, like you can always find something that's going wrong in your life, mm -hmm. right? So if you're feeling negative in your body, you can always tick it to five different things that are going wrong because everyone has stuff that's going wrong in their life, right? So yeah. it just becomes this, this, you know, this, circle jerk, you know, kind of confirmation bias 
that we look for when we're feeling negative, we look for negative things, we will always find them. And then because we made them up, we will believe them. And then that starts the whole alarm anxiety cycle that's very difficult to get out of because it's so automatic, which drives us deeper into alarm, which makes us less unconscious, maybe more dissociative. And it's, you know, our partners will say, you know, I feel like I've lost you. Like you're just not here with me. Mm-hmm. And it's not your fault, particularly. It's basically, you know, you've dissociated because you probably regressed back to a time in your life where love wasn't safe or you were traumatized or whatever it was. And you're not present. And, you know, a lot of it is just becoming aware of, okay, these are my triggers. This is what happens to me. This is what starts happening to me in my body early. Like I start getting this, um, this tenses in my stomach, you know, before I'm feeling really alarmed and scared and stuff. If I track back into what's happening, oh, like some people say, you know, I get this feeling in my thighs, like this energy feeling in my thigh. Like the earlier we can find the 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 earliest stages of how your body actually goes into the cascade of alarm, the earlier we can find those those sort of telltale signs, the more agency we have in changing them. But yeah. if we're in alarm, if the first time we notice that we're we're panicky, the house the the horse is out of the barn. Like we're not we're not really going to have that much agency in, in kind of calming that down immediately. Yeah. And then it's almost more about just like being as compassionate, I'm guessing with ourselves after that moment. Cause I think, yeah, what's hard is oftentimes we want to try and stop something in the moment, but really it's already kind of happening. And so yeah. I think that we have this myth that like, well, it shouldn't have happened in the first place. But what I work on with my clients is like, well, the thing already happened. So yes, instead exactly. of judging yourself, like, let's try to be a little bit more understanding of that. But now how do we want to show up for ourselves in the aftermath of it? And usually the aftermath is previously judgment, criticizing, feeling guilt, yeah. shame, I shouldn't have done this. Whereas we have an opportunity to love ourselves and be much more kind than what we have been previously doing. So do you want to speak to that a little bit more? Yeah, it comes to that little jabs mnemonic that I put in the book. So so jabs is we take these jabs at ourselves uh, as children. And, you know, when something's going wrong in your household, you can't blame your parents because you see your parents is needed for your survival. So if something's going wrong, kids blame themselves. I mean, there's this great saying that says when you abuse, neglect, or abandon a child, the child doesn't stop loving the parent, they stop loving themselves. And then that's the start of the split, this internal split that, you know, from your mind and your body and from your, your child self to your more adult self. So that split creates this angst in us and because we can't blame our parents we start judging ourselves we abandon ourselves we blame ourselves and we shame ourselves as children and that becomes you know that's kind of what people call the inner critic or whatever and that perpetuates itself so for women for a lot of women it's like you know my body doesn't look very good i don't like my body so it's this constant judgment and when you're in this constant judgment you know the, your neurophysiology is not going to allow you to be compassionate it just it shuts that whole system right off it shuts your shuts your social engagement system your ability to connect with yourself and others right down and this is where social anxiety comes from so when you're alarmed you don't have that social engagement system that we all need to soothe ourselves and others so it's eye contact tone of voice, prosody of voice, body language, and facial expression. We have that sort of naturally in us as human beings. But when we get alarmed, that all gets shut off in favor of our survival. So not only can't we connect with other people, we can't connect with ourselves. 
And then when we can't connect with ourselves, we feel even more negative, which creates more judgment, abandonment, blame, and shame. So it just, again, that's another cycle that just, it's very difficult to get out of unless you realize that you're in it. And it's like, okay, I'm in it now. How can I, I can't stop it, but you can kind of, as I was saying before, kind of flow through it. So it's like, mm -hmm. I don't like this feeling, like this feels really uncomfortable, but what I'm not going to do is I'm not going to add all these negative thoughts to it because I know as soon as my body feels like this, the automatic response of my head is either to judge me, abandon me, blame me, or shame me, or get into worry. So mm -hmm. those two things, it's like when you know that's going to happen and you can kind of sit and wait in your, you know, for your mind to do this and you can kind of laugh when you see your mind start to do it. It's like, okay, I don't have to do this. You know, I can create a degree of separation. I can create a curiosity around these thoughts because as soon as you're curious about the thoughts, you have a degree of separation from them. Mm -hmm. You know, curiosity kind of pulls a lot of the emotion away from things. It's like, oh, I wonder why I'm you know, so down on myself about my thighs, or I'm so down on myself about not being stronger, you know, or, you know, can't hit a golf ball straight or whatever it is. Like, I don't know why I get, to, I know why I get so down on myself about these things. So can I flow past that? Can I see the urge on the, on the shore going, Hey, Hey, you know, you know, find something about yourself that you hate, you know, and just go, you know what, I'm just going to flow by. I'm just going to just keep going down the stream. And eventually, as the emotional stuff kind of drops down, so does the alarm. And then you get your your uh, body back. And when your body comes back, then your prefrontal cortex comes back and your executive function comes back in your brain. And you can kind of go, you know what? Yeah. And the more often you do that, the more often you flow by it, the more you teach yourself and gain capacity and resilience in your, in your nervous system to know that you don't have to judge, abandon, blame yourself and shame yourself anymore. You can just, that's just, something that your your brain did out of confirmation i feel bad so there must be something wrong with me and that's not true actually so when you start realizing that and, and kind of sort of laughing at your mind going okay i know you're going to start telling me stuff you don't like about me and i'm just going to sort of flow by it like that's really the trick to healing is is just understanding that yes the awareness that yes my body is alarmed but I don't have to add a whole bunch of negative thoughts to it. Now, easier said than done, of course. Yeah, I was just going to say um, that can be, I feel like it's so helpful and also, like you said, challenging. But I think one of my favorite parts of the book was when you said, just to feel the alarm, don't try to explain it. And then you have this wonderful phrase, which I've shared before with other people, because I think it's so helpful, sensation without explanation. And so what I see so commonly in my own experience and then with my clients is like, let's say you're having a lovely dinner with your wife and let's say you had relationship anxiety pop up in that moment and then you're suddenly like, oh my gosh, does this mean my wife is not the right person because you're feeling uncomfortable and then immediately what happens with relationship OCD and anxiety is because the discomfort of the uncertainty is so strong of what this actually means, we want to put a meaning on top of it. So it must mean something about my partner, or it must mean I can't make good decisions about being with a partner. So it's not my fault. And how do we like do the sensation without explanation? Like what would that actually look like in real time? Yeah, it's practice really. I mean, it's like pr practice, um, getting into your body when your body feels good. Cause so often those of us with anxiety or relationship, uh, OCD or anxiety, don't pay any attention to our body when we feel okay. 
It's only mm. when we start feeling alarmed that we actually start paying attention to our body. And by then it's kind of too late. So it's really, it's really about practice. It's really about how does my body feel when I feel good or at least neutral? Mm-hmm. Like, how does my body feel? And getting a real sense of, of like how your body feels when you feel good. And when you get that sense, you, you have this underlying like, oh yeah, I guess I can feel this. And the more you practice that during the day, the more it's going to be available to you when you need it. So my little thing that I, I talk about all the time is, okay, Sarah, in uh, um, three months, I'm going to take you to the basketball court. And if you can make three free throws out of 10, I'm going to give you $20 million. Mm-hmm. Now, are you going to start shooting basketball free throws the day before? No, like every damn day, you're going to be out there shooting free throws so that when it comes to the day, you can be guaranteed that you're going to make three out of 10. Yes. But we don't do that with emotions. We just assume that when the emotions come up, that we'll just deal with them. But the problem is when the emotions come up, they overwhelm us and we we aren't able to deal with them because the part of our system, our brain and body that would allow us to deal with them is basically very, very weak. Like it's not, it, we haven't built it up. So we can't assume to be mentally strong if we don't do anything to build that that sort of strength. Yeah. And would you say the ABCs would be proactive strength building or more reactive in the moment it's both you know and i think it's really important just to you know the abcs are like awareness you know creating an awareness of what's going on in your system like what's triggering me right now what's feeling good right now you know body and breath what feels good in my body right now what feels good in my breath what feels uncomfortable why is my breath so shallow and then the C is like compassionate connection to the child in you. Like that's what the, that's a, a lot of C's there. But it's finding that younger version of yourself that's triggered. Say you weren't listened to as a child and now you're in a meeting and you've got your hand up and you want to say something and no one's calling on you. That's going to trigger the old childhood wound with the old alarm is going to come up. It's like, can you tolerate that feeling? Can you identify it first? Like, where is it? And then put your hand over it. And then breathe into it and then just sort of see if you can, because, because it's the child in you, the alarm is the child in you asking for your attention. That's really what it is. So if you can Mm -hmm. proactively give them that attention and teach them that, yes, you are going to be there for them. You are going to see them, hear them, love them and protect them because they don't believe that because that wasn't their experience when they were younger. So you have to show them now that you can, you know, become the mother to that child that, or the father to that child that you never had. And as cliche as that sounds, it's really about practicing when you're feeling good and when you're feeling, you know, stable and paying attention to that and showing yourself, yes, there are points that I feel really good. And that's where like my daughter loves this. She says out of all the anxiety things, my daughter has a bit of anxiety, not nearly as bad as I did, but a bit. And she said, out of all the things that you've taught me, So the thing that I use the most is this thing saying, am I safe in this moment, right? So middle of the day, middle of the night, if you're freaking out about something, realize that worry is always about the future, always, 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 and bring yourself into the present moment. Go, I know I'm, you know, scared about this in a month or a week or tomorrow or whatever, but in this moment that I'm in right now, this is really important at night when you wake up in the middle of the night, because you don't have any defenses then. It's just like, I know I'm freaked out right now, but am I actually safe in this moment that I'm in? I know that I'm worried about my dentist or whatever, but in this moment right now, right now, am I okay? It's like, 
yeah, I am actually okay right mm -hmm. now. Mm -hmm. And then just really say, sinking into that feeling of, yes, I am safe right now. Even if you're feeling alarmed, it's, it's important to know that you can feel alarmed and also just sort of calm yourself at the same time and just really be aware that your mind at that point is going to start chattering. It's going to start chattering and tell you all the things that could go wrong. And it's like, you know what? I don't, I'm curious why you're saying all this stuff to me, but I can just sit here with this, you know, kind of sensation without explanation. I can sit in the sensation, even if the sensation hurts, I can sit with it because sitting with an, an alarm in your system without creating thoughts to it is actually teaching yourself that you don't have to get sucked into the alarm anxiety cycle anymore. You can sit with the alarm but you don't necessarily have to add thoughts to it. Because as soon as you add thoughts to it, it's like throwing matches on a fire that you're kind of hoping is going to go out. It just, it'll never go out. Yeah. And you talk about valuing feeling, even if it's painful overthinking. Yeah. And that's a great example of that. And I can also add another example on for someone with relationship anxiety, let's say they wake up next to their partner and they feel anxious. And so their former uh, story was, it must be my partner that's causing this. But totally. in that moment, even though your thoughts may be jumping ahead to, well, what would this mean if I am with the wrong partner? Am I doomed? Like that means we would have to break up all of that. Bringing back to what you just asked, am I safe in this moment? Yes. I'm physically mm -hmm. laying in my bed. My partner, assuming obviously they're not abusive or dangerous is also yes. laying there. Um, and so even though I'm like you said, worried about the future and what the outcome could be in this physical moment, I'm safe. And then you repeat that maybe every minute, every hour, every day until you actually start to embody the safety more. Yeah. And again, easier said than done, Sarah, of course. And again, your ego, because your ego is this overprotective part of you that tells you you're never going to do anything that hurt you ever again. Mm -hmm. That kind of takes over. And it's like, well, we have to be hyper vigilant. We have to worry. We have to, because it, it, there's this false idea that the worry is keeping us safe. And what the worry actually does is it pulls us into our heads and out of our body and our body is where the pain is. So worry actually does serve a function in that it makes the uncertain a little more certain. So if you wake up next to your partner and you go, I got to get out of this relationship, you've taken this, all this uncertainty of like, I don't know if I should be here uh, and you put it into, okay, there's a certain, now there's a certainty. I have to get out of this relationship. So your dopaminergic system in your brain lights up and it's like, okay, well, we're on the right track here, which is very seductive. So you've, you're teaching yourself that worry actually helps you. And in a way it does because it pulls you away from this pain in your body. What I'm saying is, can you, can you feel this pain in your body and just sort of allow it to be there without going into is this the right person for me? My God, they didn't do this. No, they didn't do that. Um, you know, um, they flirted with my friend. Like you're gonna, you're gonna think of all these things that confirm how you're already feeling, and just realize that that's what your brain does, and you don't actually have to do it that way. You can say, "Am I safe in this moment?" And then when you wake up with this this pain, and and you start, you know, thinking, making excuses, or making trying to understand, blaming on your partner or whatever. Just go and say, this is just like when I was at home and my parents weren't there and they both worked. I have this same loneliness. I have this same feeling. So it's not a lot of the stuff that we bring up now has really nothing to do with our current partner. 
-hmm. You know, that's why this phrase, just like when, is so important because it's really not about them. You know, it's mm -hmm. not about the fact that they chew too loud. You know, yeah. it's not about the fact that they take all the covers, you know, it's not about the fact that they, they seem, you know, kind of selfish and choosing the movie or the restaurant or whatever. It's usually something from your past that this is lighting up again. Mm -hmm. So if you can find the original place where this is lighting up, you can actually use this in your, to your advantage to help you heal. Now it might not be the right relationship for you. Fair enough. But at least the more you can settle into your body, the more objective you can be and actually make the right decision from a sort of a rational perspective rather than an emotional perspective. Now, again, easier said than done when it comes to relationships because they're they're entwined with so many different aspects, uh, you know, security, yeah. comfort, you know, all this sort of stuff that maybe we didn't get as children. But I know a lot of us sell ourselves out because, you know, we're so afraid of being abandoned, we'll put up with a bunch of shit from someone because we don't want them to abandon us. So it's realizing, okay, just like when, when did I put up with a lot of shit when I was younger? When did I not get my needs met? How am I replicating that same situation now that I was doing back then? And do I have to, can I work this through with my partner? Can I explain to my partner, you know, when I was younger, I was a latchkey kid, you know, I was home until my parents didn't get home till seven o'clock. So when you don't come home till seven o'clock, it triggers me. It's not you. It's not what you're, it's not you. It's basically this old pattern in me that this fires up. So yeah. it's like, you can kind of take, you can make it less personal because I know from a male point of view, as soon as, you know, Cynthia says something to me like, or insinuates on some level that something's, something's wrong. I immediately think I've done something wrong mm -hmm. and I don't think that's unusual. So it's like, and then when you do that, then the alarm starts and then you shut off your frontal lobes and then you're, you know, and then you get into a fight. And then basically, you know, my hurt seven-year-old is arguing with her hurt seven-year-old and yeah. that's not going to go well. Yeah, definitely. And for those who are listening, you can't see, but I'm looking at the photo behind you and it's oh, one right. that I have favorited like the sculptures of the two adults kind of facing away with their heads in their hands and like just so defeated. But then the the child within is like trying to reconnect. And I feel like that's a perfect image to describe exactly what happens when yeah. each other's alarm is kind of triggering each other's alarm unintentionally, of course. Yeah. And so it's from Burning Man. So a lot of people know. So it's the, the adults are, are sort of these cage figures and they're sort of sitting away, facing away from each other. And the two little babies are inside the cages reaching towards each other. So it's, yeah. it's a very poignant, you know, it's a very poignant piece. And, and a lot of people, you know, direct my attention to it too. I get so used to it now because it's been there for years, but, <laughs> but it's a really interesting piece for sure. Yeah. I think you brought up an interesting point of like, maybe this isn't the right relationship. And I think even someone listening could be like, oh my gosh, well, what would, what would that mean if that were true? And another yeah. thing I loved that you brought up in anxiety rx is in the off chance that something doesn't work how you're expecting it to or if something actually does come true that you're worried about you'll be able to handle it and as hard as that can feel to believe in the moment 
I think that's such an important reminder for anyone listening, because I think, I mean, I just got engaged to Nate, but I still don't know if our relationship's going to work. Right. Right, So I feel like I, it's like, yeah, I'm moving forward. And like, I feel good most of the time, but I still have my moments, but it's like, I can't guarantee our future. And I think that the uncertainty piece can really be scary, of course, but I always come back to no matter what happens, I'll be okay. Even if there's so many painful feelings that come up, I know that I'll be able to be okay. But I think that takes some self-trust, you know, which not everybody has. And I'm not saying that in a judgmental way, but I think it can be taken from us if we have triggering pasts. And that was, you know, that wasn't necessarily true for a lot of us when we're younger. It was kind of the end of the world when we're younger, when we're powerless and helpless and there's a parent who's like abusive or abandoning or sick or whatever. So there wasn't a way out when we're younger. Mm -hmm. So there wasn't that sort of light at the end of the tunnel. And I think a lot of what happens when we get traumatized as children and how it affects our relationship is because we start looking at things in very black and white terms. You know, it's like, it's either going great you know, and we're wired for this, like in the first 12 weeks of a relationship, we have all sorts of oxytocin and dopamine and stuff kicking around there. We're drugged, you know, and the and often the people that we're most attracted to are the ones that replicate our old trauma. So it's like these, you know, this is the, my old joke about when your soulmate becomes your cellmate, you know, because <laughs> it's like, it, it is one of those things that we're often most attracted to the people like those intense, intense attractions to people are often rooted in trauma. You know, like sometimes you meet your soulmate for sure, but the ones that you have the most intense connections with initially um, are often the ones that that replicate your old childhood wounds. So not always, but it happens quite a bit. And that's the thing about alarm is it is it is it increases our perception of threat and it decreases our perception of our ability to deal with it. So it's Mm -hmm. really a double whammy as far as that goes. So threat seems worse than what it really is. And also our, our, our estimation of our ability to handle it drops. So it really, you know, no wonder it cycles on us. Yeah. And I think to anyone that is in my community, who's listening, who's like, well, I never had the honeymoon phase. Like, is that a bad thing? You know, the example you just gave, sometimes that honeymoon phase isn't always a sign of longevity. So I just think reminder reminder excuse me that there is no one right way a relationship can start um and i think it's worth mentioning i think it really is because i think people think it's going to be all hearts and rainbows and flowers and often that's the case but what i see in you know in, in practical experience is the most intense beginnings of relationships are often you know they mirror each other's wounds not always of course but I find that the people that sort of come together have common values, uh, they get along well, they enjoy the same kind of sense of humor, that kind of stuff. That's longevity. The other stuff is it's it's almost like dopamine and serotonin. Like dopamine is immediate gratification, you know, and it drugs us and we're just so addicted to to the immediate gratification. And serotonin is kind of like the present moment, here and now, like I'm content with this, that kind of thing. And life is human life is kind of like a combination of like, how much can I be content? And how much do I need to, you know, you know, finish my goals, you know, write a book, whatever it is that I have to do. So it's really this balance between the two. And I think in our society, we're getting so heavily, you know, skewed into dopamine, into immediate gratification, and that kind of thing. And then we start thinking that, well, that's how relationships have to be all the time. 
and there mm -hmm. you know there's there's companionate love uh which is different than the intense you know initially highly kind of sexually charged love it's very different and there's there's a a natural progression that goes through that and i think that's why a lot of relationships at the 8 to 12 week mark just break up because the oxytocin starts to drop and they start seeing you know what maybe this really isn't kind of what i wanted mm -hmm. right so Absolutely. there's phase, there's different phases and i don't think i think some of the some of the more stable relationships in my life didn't start out with all the you know the fireworks and that kind of stuff it was actually oh okay oh, this this person's, you know, they do yoga, I do yoga, you know, we get along well, we laugh, you know, the the relationships that are the most sort of comfortable and fulfilling, I think, have that. Now, there's nothing wrong with the fun stuff, the intense stuff, but it's probably going to end badly. You know, when it yeah. starts with that intensity, it's probably going to end with the same kind of level of intensity, too. So, but that's part of life, you know, yeah, you can't, you can't protect yourself from everything. Yep. I know the anxious mind would like to protect us from everything, oh, but yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, kind of, um, you know, to wrap up this topic a bit, I have a few more questions, but sure. I thought a great quote from anxiety RX, that's a little bit ironic with the relationship anxiety mind is that the only antidote to fear is love. Mm -hmm. But interestingly, if love is the thing that also is scary and big and feels so uncertain and risky, it can be really hard in those moments when the fear is so strong to actually step into that love, which you can embody internally, right. of course, towards yourself, but then also to give or receive love from somebody else. So I guess not necessarily a question, but just tossing that yeah. over. <laughs> it's kind of fake it till you make it in a way too. And I think that that's, you know, it's a sign of maturity to be able to, when you're you know, having a uh, disagreement with your partner or whatever to kind of see their side and go, you know, I can see how coming home at seven o'clock really upset you. Um, it's not really my fault. You know, I, I don't because I said that I was going to, but I can see how that would really, you know, really affect you. And, you know, not that I have to apologize for it, but I love you and I care about you and, and I want to make sure that, you know, you feel safe. That's often hard to do when you feel blamed. You know, mm -hmm. if you're coming home late and then, you know, you get the blame because, you know, they were abandoned as a child and you're just, you know, reiterating or, or showing up, uh, recapitulating their fear. Uh, and neither of you really know why, but you just now you're into a fight. Right. So it's really takes a lot of emotional maturity to kind of go, this is my pattern, explaining it to the other person. You don't have to tell them, but it's like even explaining it to yourself like this just is just like when. You know, I, my parents didn't come home till 7 PM and it freaked me out every, every day. So I understand this in myself. Now I can explain it to my partner and say, and they still may do it, but it's kind of up to you at that point to kind of go, yeah, this is my stuff. You know, this yeah. is really my stuff. And can I be compassionate to that little, you know, 11 year old who didn't see their parents until 7 PM every night. Can you find that little person inside of you and say, you know, I've got you, you know, I'll see you, I'll love you, I'll hear you, I'll protect you. You'll be you'll be okay now. Like I will never ever leave you. I mean, you felt abandoned when you were a child, but I can never leave you and I will never leave you. Which is kind of odd because, you know, often as adults, we do leave that child because that child holds our pain. Mm -hmm. So it's really again coming back and having the adult version of ourselves be able to connect with the child 
and the child connect with the adult and have our mind and our body connect as well. And that's how we heal. That's the only way we heal. And basically it's, it's kind of getting into that sort of state of love for that younger version of you, even though they hold pain, even though it means going back into pain, you can still hold that, hold that love in your heart at the same time. And that's how you teach yourself to heal. Yeah. Something you said just kind of clicked something maybe in a way I hadn't thought of before, but I think compassion, whether it's self-compassion or compassion to others is the difference between when something is being blamed versus getting to decide you want to be responsible for something. Because if you're always going to blame yourself for what's happened in your past, then that's coming from the jabs lens of like judgment or shame and blame. But if you allow yourself to be more compassionate, then that will hopefully give you the strength to take responsibility to give yourself the love that maybe you didn't used to have. And so I think compassion is probably one of the most important ingredients for you to actually be willing to then do something about it so you don't get stuck in the victim cycle. Yeah. So it's learning how to be your own friend, you know, and break that lock of of self of jabs of self-judgment, abandonment, blame, and shame. Because while you're stuck in that victim mentality of judgment, abandonment, blame, and shame, you can't heal. And you can't really love either. Like you can't really have comfortable love because if you don't have that connection with yourself, you can't have it with someone else. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But we, we but we search for this magical other. Like I think when we have pain, when we have trauma, we have this, and I think it's almost like it's this sort of Freudian search for the perfect parent, this magical other that's going to come and soothe us and heal us and that kind of stuff. And when we realize they don't, then we hold it against them, but they can't. Like they literally can't do it. So it's just, yeah, it's part of being human. For sure. And I found that as I continue to practice connection to myself, then I'm able to connect more with Nate. But I think that whole thing of you have to fully love yourself or fully connect to yourself before someone, it's like, all right, I'll just be waiting around then. (laughs) It doesn't work that way. You know, it's, it's, you know, here's the, the other sort of dichotomy in there is that we need to love ourselves. Absolutely. But the way we learn to love ourselves is through other people. So yeah. it's this kind of, you know, uh, intermingling kind of meshed sort of thing um, that lends itself to codependence for sure. Because if we don't know how to do it, we will tend to get into a codependent relationship as opposed to a loving one. Now, all relationships are codependent to some extent. Like, uh, you know, when I hear about people going, we're not codependent, it's like everyone is to some yeah. extent, you know, you know, we all have wounds. Uh, as Charlie, you know, we all have trauma to some extent. As child, now our parent might have sued that trauma when we were younger, which is great because it builds resi- a resilience and capacity. But we all have trauma, you know. So it's not like you know, there's this perfect relationship where you know I'm perfectly uh, adapted to them and they're perfectly adapted to me. There's always going to be crap, and the reason why this crap is so that you know we learn, we change, and and consciousness to get a little woo on you wants to experience itself and it can experience itself as itself because it is itself. I know that's going to be a conversation, a different uh, way of explaining it. So it, it experiences itself through us, through human beings, through animals, whatever. So it makes us all a little different, you know, and it makes Mm -hmm. our wounds all a little different, makes our sensitivity a little different. So it experiences itself through that. So, you know, we're all just a big experiment really. Yeah. Beautifully said. Well, because this is the You Love and You Learn podcast, 
I would love to hear if there's something that comes to mind that you have learned about love that you would want to leave listeners with. I think it just, it's finding the peace and the calm in yourself because we live in this sort of dopamine driven immediate gratification i want this i want this and it's always looking outside of yourself like dopamine is always about what's outside of your reach right and the more serotonin is like how can i be content with what i have and it's just spending more time being content even if you're not feeling good you know, can I be content just being present? Can I have sensation without explanation? Because if you learn that you're not a slave to your mind, that opens you up to the ability to love. If you're a slave to your mind all the time, it really blocks your ability to love. Mm -hmm. Yeah, very well said. Thank you for that. All right. Well, I'm sure everyone listening is going to, of course, want to dive into Anxiety Rx, but also sure. where can they stay in touch with you where are you most active that you would want people to stay connected sure well when i don't get kicked off instagram um <laughs> which i did like a week ago for like 10 days and no one knows why but oh, no. at the anxiety yeah at the anxiety md so basically not the anxiety doctor but the anxiety md if you google the anxiety md you'll find all my stuff instagram website all that kind of thing and i have a book called anxiety rx and i also have a um a program called your mind body prescription for permanent anxiety healing which goes into the deeper subcortical structures it has meditations in it that help you find the alarm in your body connect your adult self with your child self connect your mind and your body and actually really heal from a deeper subcortical level as well as understanding exactly what anxiety is so at the anxiety md is probably the best way to find all that stuff about me awesome very good. Well, yeah, I highly encourage that. I mean, I've learned so much from this book. As I was preparing for this conversation, I was like, I think it's time for me to read it a second time. So thank <laughs> you really so much for coming on. Thanks, Sarah. It's, uh, you know, I'm, it's about time. You know, we've been <laughs> chatting back and forth on Instagram now for like a year or two. So I think you said you you found me when I had like 500 subscribe or 5,000 subscribers or something like that. So yeah. it's nice to see us both growing. So it's yeah. a pleasure to be here and, and I welcome uh, I, I'd love to come back anytime. Yes, we might have to do a part two. <laughs> sure. Thank you so much. Talk to you Thanks soon. Again, Sarah. Thank you so much for listening to the Love and You Learn podcast. If you've been enjoying the podcast, it would mean the absolute world to me if you could rate and review the podcast because the more ratings and reviews there are, the more people that can hear this message. And it's really important to me to get this message out to the world and to create a space where people can learn about love and relationships in a way that is not judgmental, in a way that helps them expand their perspective from the cultural narratives that we've heard and seen in the movies and in Hollywood and the media. And the more ratings and reviews that are there, the more people that can hear this message. So thank you again so much. It really means the world to me that you are listening and see you in the next episode.